This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. No mansplaining needed on this one. Women in Silicon Valley lagging behind their male counterparts again. This time around, bigger implications. We just want to be treated right. Here to explain her Bloomberg Businessweek magazine story, Rebecca Greenfield, reporter at Bloomberg News. So talk to us about your story because Rebecca, Jason, I, so many of us at Bloomberg News have spent a lot of time talking about the pay gaps that we're seeing Uh, between men and women, particularly you see it a lot in Silicon Valley, your story takes it even further and it has some pretty big implications. Yeah, so this is, I think, a first of its kind study. It's a huge data set. It's almost 180,000 employees, 6,000 employers, and it found that there is a huge equity gap between men and women, that women only hold 47 cents of equity for every dollar that male employees When you hold. say equity, what are you talking about? I mean stock options in company, ownerships in com- ownership in companies, and this doesn't include public companies. They only did um, pro- you know, in companies that have been invested in. Well, and as Carol said, the implications of this for hu- are huge, not just for the dollars and cents of this, but for what stock options really represent in the world of Silicon Valley and beyond. It's not just about your ability to buy a house or a new car, pay for your kid's college. This is how people wield influence and how they really ultimately shape the future uh, of Silicon Valley in many ways. Yeah, stock options can be big paydays and often you know people become wealthy but they also use it to found companies or become investors or wield political power so it's like the next movers and shakers of silicon valley which right now is the center of a lot of things that are happening in our culture and economy well and to that point another statistic that is absolutely eye-popping in your story is that 2.2 percent i believe uh 2.2 of venture capital funding went to women mm-hmm. in 2017. It's like nothing. Yeah. It's, it's essentially nothing. It's really, really small in that it feeds into this equity gap because male founders are more likely to hire men. So fewer women will get hired if fewer of them are getting funded. And then female founders, if they have a hard time raising money, they're going to have to dilute the equity more. And, it, and again, it trickles down. Well, you talk about too, and we had, uh, Jason and I had an earlier conversation with you for Bloomberg Business Week on the weekend about this story. And it, you just talk about that it means that they're not going to have not only the equity, bigger equity positions, but the clout, right, that carries them so much further. This is, this is what this is about. I mean, I think about all the individuals, the self-made billionaires or millionaires that we talk about, and it's often before a guy's name. It's not often before a woman's name. This is what happens. Yeah, I mean, so one group I'm thinking of is the PayPal Mafia. We hear about that all the time. That is a group of men who are now very powerful, who run a bunch of really powerful companies. Um, So women are not getting that same choice, and it's they're proportionately not getting the same choice. It's not just about representation. Women hold more position equity holding positions than they're getting equity for in Silicon Valley. So one of the things you bring up in the story too is it, it, you sort of go into how this actually happens, how this is executed with, within companies and some of the implications of it. So obviously issues of unconscious bias at, at sometimes, but one of the things that you talk about is misleveling. There was a term that I wasn't familiar with when we talked earlier. Tell us about that. Yeah, so 
compensation discussions are complicated and often lack a lot of transparency. Equity adds another layer to that because there's not much consistency and people don't know things. And what one lawyer who handles this a lot told me is that a lot of employers will give people equity packages that are for positions that are lower than the job that they'll actually be doing. And if you don't push back on that, you're going to be selling yourself short and get that lower equity than you deserve. Does that happen for both men and women or just mostly women? The lawyer didn't say, but I think what she did say was that um, it takes having the confidence to push back. And we know research has shown that when women push back, they don't get as good results as men do. And that's a really important point that you also bring up in the story, this idea that women don't get the same results and yet push back just as often, which is so it's not a matter of they don't ask and therefore they don't get. It's that they ask at the same rate, but receive better compensation at a lower rate. That's amazing. Yeah, I think there's there's a stereotype, I think, from the lean-in movement that women aren't as aggressive as men. But research since then has shown that that's not true, that women ask just as much as men, but they're just not getting as often. And I, I think that's because of a lot of sexism about what happens when a woman asks, how is she perceived? Well, that's what's kind of interesting. I do think about, you know, since Sheryl Sandberg came out with that book, uh, Lean In, how many years ago, right? And this whole idea that, hey, women, you've got to step up. Well, they are stepping up and they're still getting pushed back. Yeah, Unfortunately. (laughs) Am I getting a little strident? No. Okay. Um, So what happens next? I mean, how does this problem get solved? Because what you're describing is not something that is easily fixed, candidly. It's systemic. And so what are the ways that companies or consultants or women themselves within these companies are trying to solve this? Yeah, it's a complicated problem. Lots of different factors factoring into it. I think knowing the number is the first step. We'd never had data like this before. It's very staggering. And then I think, you know, the next step is educating people about equity, something that is overly complicated, but not actually complicated. Um, And then I, I don't know, I think awareness is a very not satisfying answer, but it's, it's going to be a long time before it's corrected. I mean, it is interesting. The, the, this is not something that you can easily dismiss once you look at the at the bare numbers, right? No. I mean, it's just, it's not something like, oh, making progress, like we're getting close. It's not close no. at all. No. Well, where are companies on this? You talk to a lot of companies, you know, around the country and in Silicon Valley. I mean, what do they say about these issues or these concerns? Companies are reluctant to admit that they have pay problems because it can get them into legal trouble because you have to pay equal pay for equal work. Um, And when companies do their own analyses of pay, they claim they don't have any pay gap. I don't think those analyses factor in equity, um, but I'm I'm not sure on that, actually. So I think it's something that companies need to be thinking about more. We really haven't had this conversation yet. Right. But we are having it now, which is a good thing. And taking (laughs) that whole pay gap to a whole nother level at this point. So I think that's a great thing. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Rebecca Greenfield, reporter at Bloomberg News, uh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Jason and I got more on this topic uh, for Bloomberg Business Weekend. So check out more on the weekend. And we should say the story is available uh, now on the Bloomberg and Mm -hmm. on Bloomberg.com. And as you say, in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Weekend. You can get it everywhere. And can I just say, everybody, you should all read it. 
you should. Okay. Absolutely. And I believe you've already <laughs> tweeted it out. Perhaps. All you have to do is well, follow I, Carol Master some, on Twitter. Somebody actually just tweeted at me. That's awful, but not too surprising. And that is part of the problem, right? We kind of know this is going on. Right. But, but the hard data, I mean, we're all about data here at Bloomberg. And once you're able to sort of put some things around, I mean, to Rebecca's very good point, it's much harder to ignore if you're able to put the yeah. data in front of someone and say, well, this is the issue. This is the scope of the issue. Size and scope. I learned that from Matt Winkler uh, many years ago. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's bring in Matthew Phillips, policy and politics editor at Bloomberg Business Week, joining us from our Washington, D.C. bureau. Matthew, I'm sure you were listening. Uh, what, what really kind of caught you of interest there in that discussion? Well, I thought it was a very smart and sharp question that was posed to the president about the trade deficit having gone up by 12% last year. It went up last month by $72 billion. Uh, this, of course, uh, the president um, uh, seems to have memorized these numbers. Uh, he thinks a lot about deficits. They are, in his mind, kind of one of the better measuring sticks. And um, I thought that was really interesting. And, and he kind of put the president on the spot. And he said, look, it's early. We started with China. We got some help with North Korea. We wanted to get to a point where they were helping. I feel like um, there are some probably some, some voices inside the White House that felt like they're getting diminishing returns on that. Uh, so that's probably why we've seen some of this ratcheting up of this tit-for-tat uh, um, uh, tariffs that we've seen, including the $200 billion uh, that was announced uh, this past week and that's going to go into effect next week. For and Matthew, uh, you heard Carol recap some of the headlines related to Judge Kavanaugh uh, and the hearings or potential new hearings there. Anything jump out at you that was new or different and synthesize that with what you're hearing uh, from the Hill today? I don't think so. I mean, the question is really what we're going to see when this hearing happens, if we get uh, Judge Kavanaugh and his accuser um, kind of toe-to-toe -to -toe in the room together. Obviously, uh, this isn't what the White House expected. This did kind of come at the last minute. Uh, the president was quite, quite critical of the Democrats and how they've handled this, seeming to suggest that they knew of some of this uh, prior to. He had some pretty harsh words about Senator Feinstein, suggesting that she um, kept this to herself, perhaps, uh, when she was meeting with, uh, with the judge um, earlier in his process. Uh, and it looks like, you know, the reporting that's come out suggests that uh, this was brought to her attention, to her office's attention, uh, only last week. Right. So it is good and important to understand the timeline, right, of how this stuff has come out and how it has evolved. That's right. And he was asked about the, the FBI. Uh, obviously, the president has a fraught relationship with the FBI. That is a bit of a third rail. Um, but rather than engaging on that and bringing up issues of kind of the, the information that uh, is being declassified or related to the Russia investigation, he basically said, look, this isn't uh, what the FBI does. They've done uh, background checks uh, on Kavanaugh through his career as he's moved up uh, the, the ladder. And he kind of moved along uh, back and, and, and really stuck to trade. I mean, that's his bread and butter. That's uh, it, it's clear that those are the numbers that he uh, knows in his mind. I mean, he was rattling off uh, $370 billion, which is the trade deficit we have with China. He was talking about um, uh, the $500 billion of, uh, of, of goods that the U.S. buys from China every year. I mean, that's really where this president um, thinks of himself as, as an expert, and it's something that he's felt for a very long time. All right. Going to leave it on that note. 
Matthew, thank you. Appreciate uh, your time. Matthew Phillips, he's our policy and politics editor at Bloomberg Business Week. You can read uh, his stuff uh, and everything uh, politics from our Bloomberg News team. Just go to Bloomberg.com. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Master, Jason Kelly, and uh, this is Bloomberg Radio. All right, Carol, well, you know that I've been excited about this next conversation. Just a little bit. A rare treat for us. In studio, James Quarles, he's the CEO of Strava. Strava, of course, is well known to athletes out there, especially those who ride bikes in a serious way, those of us who run in, at least myself, a uh, quasi-serious way, also expanding into the boutique world. Uh, So, James, great to have you here with Carol uh, and myself. Uh, Congratulations on your upcoming marathon, I should say, New York City. Uh, here you come. You'll be back in a few weeks for for your first marathon. I That's believe. right. That's very exciting. Uh, clearly, you are tracking your progress, and your network is following you on Strava. What are we seeing out there right now? As you you have such an amazing window into you know how people exercise, where they're doing it, how they're doing it, who they're doing it with. Uh, what are you seeing? Well, yeah. So we do. Um, Strava is 34 million now members globally. So we have a very big audience, 82 percent outside the United States. And I think trend-wise, um, you know, technology is having a lot of influence on um, health and fitness. You see this through a lot of new companies emerging. I think number one, a lot more people are getting devices on their wrists. They're getting less expensive, more powerful. Number two, you're seeing a lot more tech come into studio and gym experiences and those be broadcast into people's homes. Number three, your phone gives you access to thousands of different apps that can help you. And then number four, I think these brands and businesses that have traditionally sold through retail are trying to get more proximity to their uh, consumers. So all of those trends are reshaping fitness and Strava is right at the center of that world of connected fitness. So tell me how it works. Yeah, so if uh, if you go on a run, let's say Carol, if we uh, went to Central Park today, you know, it's as simple if you have a phone to just press start and you can record an activity. And when you finish, get insights about how did that compare to what you'd done previously. And maybe people of your same either age or ability level had performed um, and do that comparison. So it's like the Peloton leaderboard, right? While I'm on at home in the privacy of my home and I can be part of a library class or I can be part of an active class, but I'm also seeing what some of my peers, well, maybe peers (laughs) and others are doing. Yeah, so um, Peloton's a great partner of ours. Uh, I talked about an outdoor case, but Mm -hmm. as Jason was saying in the intro, we've partnered closely with these indoor providers. Whether you go into a studio or you do it at home, there's lots of neat technology coming to people's homes. You can have those activities count. And so through the integrations with someone like a company called FitBod, you do upper body strength training. When When that session finishes, it immediately posts to your Strava feed. So your outdoor, your indoor, your gym and studio all syncs to one place, and that is Strava. And it does feel like that was a big moment for you guys as a company sort of moving from the outdoors indoors studios are so popular with people you know one of your recent deals i believe is with mind body you know they really power you know the scheduling and the processing of so many i mean tens of thousands i think of uh studios uh around the world as you look into that data what's popular right now you know especially in the studio space what are people sort of cottoning to yeah, so we're seeing that our community absolutely, you know, they have three or more activities that they do besides being on a bike and running outside. 
And as you said, MindBody has, I think, 5.2 million classes you can choose from. So it's just huge. I think the trends are, number one big trend is variety. People yeah. want to do multiple things. They don't just want to ride on a, a stationary bike. They don't just want to do high intensity training. I think if you did those too often, you'd strain yourself. So I do think that the variety is certainly a big appeal. And then the second thing is I think there's more quantification. People are getting more of these Fitbit, Apple, uh, Garmin, Sunto devices. 380 of those read and write to Strava and they're taking them into all of these at-home workouts and in-studio workouts and they want to see it integrated and make sense of it. Am I getting fitter? Do I feel better than, you know, three months ago? And how can that show up when it's so fragmented? Well, what's the output, right? Because I was thinking, listening to what you're saying and I'm thinking, is this about community? Yes. Is this about data and analytics? Yes. So here I am, you're tracking all my different workouts. What's the output that I get? What do I learn about myself? Yeah, I think uh, if you strip it back, what Strava has learned how to do is to digitize motivation. And mm. motivation doesn't come from sensors. People keep people active. Mm -hmm. And so if we can give you, for some people, it is just that self-improvement. And so if you can see a run that you did, a 5K in Central Park, you're 20 seconds faster than the last time you did it, that really motivates people to stay active. Look, this tr marathon training that Jason talked about, it starts at 5 a.m. for me. I have three kids. It's cold. It's lonely. It's dark when I get back, when <laughs> right, I finish. Right. The, the, you know, staying fit is a lonely endeavor. Bringing people along with you provides you all this great motivation. So that's what you get back from it. But there are people who are very competitive yeah. who like to see and you know crush somebody else. And, and that's a different part of the experience. I got to ask, because we're Bloomberg, what's the financial model? We got about yeah. 40 seconds. Like, sure. how, Is it a membership? What is it? Yeah, we have a subscriptions business. So oh, we're okay. over only a subscriptions business. We, uh, at the beginning of August, took that from being one offer into three offers. People subscribe to get um, analysis of their runs. They want a safety feature to give some of the ability to see where you are when you're running or riding someplace unfamiliar. And then this ability to look at how my heart rate data translating into a fitness score and so that's what they pay uh, eight bucks a month or sixty dollars a year for awesome james quarles ceo of strava good luck as you train more and more we're going to see you back here in new york city you'll have to come in post race you know you're going to be in that marathon afterglow and you can tell us uh how it was out there great to be with you you know that Thank i love you. this stuff carol can you tell <laughs> a little a little crush a little here little nothing crush. wrong with it yeah, fitness right. crush fitness crush it's a fit crush <laughs> it's a fit crush james corals thank you so much ceo at strava you are listening to bloomberg radio i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Walter Todd, Chief Investment Officer at Greenwood Capital Associates, with us on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina, uh, which thankfully was not hit by Florence, the storm. Uh, that certainly the other Carolinas, North Carolina, really took it uh, big time. So, Walter, good to have you here with us. Glad you were safe from the storm. Reminding us, I was looking at your notes, of a statistic, which I want to repeat because I think we've been talking about it with our Dave Wilson, too. Since 1946, the S&P 500 has never declined in 12 months following midterm elections with the average return of more than 15%. So that's the history. But, of course, you know, <laughs> past performance doesn't necessarily dictate future performance. We're living in interesting times 
would you make a bet on that, that that's how it's going to play around this time around? Yeah, and that, that, that statistic is courtesy of our good friends at Strategus Research. And um, I, I think it's, it's dangerous to bet against, you know, the, the history. And if you kind of step back for a minute and, and think about all the craziness that's going on right now with the tariffs and everything else, and we've got the midterm elections and nobody knows what the outcome of that's going to be, um, I think it's kind of reg- I think the history would tell you it's kind of regardless of the outcome. It's the fact that the market kind of breathes a sigh of relief that we've got an outcome and we kind of know what that is and can move beyond that. So I would tend to think there's a good chance that that repeats. I would not bet on that average 15% return, but I do think there's the the backdrop for the market to be up 12 months after the midterm elections. When you just look at the earnings backdrop, the economic growth. Uh, backdrop that we've got here in the U.S., um, I think there's a decent chance we could see that repeat itself, but not at the level maybe of that average return. So, Walter, we also have to ask you about something we ask every single investor, and we were talking about it earlier uh, in the show, which is how does trade play through this market? I'm seeing a lot of green on my Bloomberg terminal, more and more uh, headlines coming out, which seem to give the market maybe a level of comfort that at least we know the shape uh, of this trade policy. How do you factor that in to your discussions and your dis- ultimately your decisions? Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of like the market has become uh, just kind of used to th- these trade headlines. I mean, at first it tended to shock the market. And as we've gone further and further into this, you would just say, oh, you know, another $200 billion of goods we're going to put a tariff on. But I think at the end of the day, when you look at the numbers, so let's go worst-case scenario. Let's say we put a 25% tariff on $570 billion of Chinese goods. You're talking about 140 uh, or so in tariffs, uh, what that number is, $140 million. So, uh, excuse me, $140 billion. So the total you know, that we're getting from repatriation, tax cuts, fiscal spending is almost a trillion dollars. So it just, it kind of dwarfs that number, even in a worst case scenario. I think that's what's kind of driving the markets right here as it relates to trade. The other thing, point I want to make that we kind of looked at in investment committee this morning is this simple statistic. 20 years ago, there were 6,500 stocks and the Fed balance sheet was 450 billion. Today, there's 3,500 stocks and the Fed balance sheet is 4.2 trillion. Wow. So it's kind of a supply and demand issue, right? There's fewer and fewer stocks for the money to go into, and there's no shortage of money kind of floating around the world today. That's fabulous. So wait a minute. So does that mean because there's so much money floating around and there's less, at least on the equity side of things, to invest in, um, and as you mentioned, even on the fixed income side, because so much is on the Fed's balance sheet still, that valuations are maybe being uh, not quite accurate because of that supply-demand equation? Well, I think what it means is that valuations could be pressed higher just as a simple function of the supply and demand characteristics. So you've got all these dollars chasing fewer public companies. And bear in mind, even the public companies that are still public have much less smaller float. You know, Home Depot's bought back 25% of their shares over the past 10 years, and they're not, they're not alone in that. So I do think it could set the kind of the low point of valuation a, a little bit higher and keep this market moving 
maybe further than we would anticipate when we think we're 10 years into this bull market almost. Hmm. So Walter, if I think back to back in the day, I believe you and I used to talk when I was on the tech beat. And so I know you know a lot about technology stocks, and I know it's a place where you've spent a lot of time thinking of late. Put tech and maybe some, some names, if you can, in context for us in this market, especially amid all this enthusiasm that you've described. Yeah. Well, tech for us, uh, you know, it's just been, to state the obvious, it's been an incredible sector over the last, you know, two-plus years. It's been the top-performing sector, you know, going away um, over that time period. And so when you think about that, you know, valuations have become more stretched uh, within that sector. So for us, tech's a little bit actually of an underweight right here, hmm. and we're kind of playing for some mean reversion, kind of catch-up in some other areas of the market, like industrials and energy. But within tech, um, we are kind of gravitating in our large cap portfolio um, to maybe some of the uh, the oldies but goodies like a Cisco that still trades at a very reasonable valuation has almost a three percent dividend yield. For example, again, we can't make a formal recommendation to buy or sell, but these are names that we hold yeah. uh, within that space. Um, we we're, we're underweight, kind of the, the internet and social media. We don't own Facebook. We sold it earlier this year, for example. Uh, we do, still have some Alphabet because the re, you know it's more reasonably valued, but we think there's some headwinds there. And you've seen some real turmoil in semis. Yeah. So we've reduced we've reduced space there uh, as well. Great stuff. Always good to hear your southern accent, Walter Todd, Chief Investment <laughs> Officer at Greenwood Capital Associates, joining us on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.